Hey y'all, my name is Cliff Watson. Welcome to season two, episode two of Emerging, the official podcast of the Trout Unlimited Costa Five Rivers program, brought to you by Sims Fishing Products. Today, Libby and I sat down with Nick Halley, who is the volunteer operations coordinator for Trout Unlimited. We talked about what he does for TU. Uh, we talked about the Madison River crisis that happened uh, the 30th of November this year. He lives up in Missoula, so he was at ground zero for that. Uh, he's done a lot of fishing in Montana, so we talked about that. And uh, yeah, conservation, all things good within Trout Limited, and a lot of fun stuff. So we really hope you enjoy the show. And if you have any questions, be sure to send them to five rivers at tu.org. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Hey, Nick, welcome to Emerging. How's your day going? Hey, Cliff. Uh, pretty good, man. It's uh starting to feel a little bit more like winter here in in uh in montana and i may have buried the lead there a little bit um <laughs> but finally seeing some snow which is you know great for great for skiing and uh well it's all future trout water too so that's a it's a net positive across the board absolutely you big skier i would not say i am a big skier i would i think the term is uh Leisure skiing. Leisure skiing. Okay. I go, I go skiing and that's just, that's funny. <laughs> that's funny for me. Gotcha. Understood. Uh, so you're a big trout fisherman then. That that must be why you're on the podcast, huh? Uh, yeah, I, I, I go fishing sometimes. <laughs> um, I think, uh, I think this year I, you know, whether it was, you know, a full day or maybe just an hour in the evening or at lunch, uh, I think I've been on the water 130 plus days this year that's um, awesome which is uh it's helpful to have some some pretty good water uh you know right out my front door where do you, where do you live uh, i'm uh i live up here in missoula montana um i've lived here for gee what is it uh three three or four three years i think um i live up here with uh with my dog Lander, and uh, yeah, this is home. Nice. What kind of dog is Lander? Uh, Lander, Lander is a his breed name is a is a little bit of a mouthful. Lander's a Nova Scotia duck tolling retriever. Um, he's a uh, yeah, he's a he's a bird dog. He's a the smallest of all the retrievers. Looks kind of like a little fox, and uh, yeah, that's my that's my son right there. <laughs> that's great. What's his favorite bird to go after? Oh, um, pretty much anything that falls. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, it, to, to him, you know, the bird, the bird is, uh, you know, that's just a, a play thing. I don't think he really has much of a preference as long as he gets to go get it and bring it back. Yep. That's what matters to him. <laughs> so what do you do up in Montana? Uh, so I work as Trout Unlimited's volunteer operations coordinator. Um, I've been doing that job for, four years now i've been with trial limited five years um and so i basically work very closely with all of our 400 plus uh, volunteer-led chapters across the country um helping them i guess the party line is helping them bring to use conservation mission uh to life in their own communities so these are you know very local level grassroots organizations uh underneath the trout unlimited umbrella that are um all volunteer-led and so i'm kind of uh 
in charge of assisting them with uh, pretty much anything they need. And that's a pretty wide, uh, that's a pretty wide scope. Yeah. So for any of our listeners that aren't familiar with TU's, you know, conservation mission, could you give us an overview of that? Well, so we want to try to, you know, our, our, our model, our conservation model is to protect, reconnect, uh, restore. And then the fourth part of it is sustain. Um, and I focus largely on that fourth part, um, in that we want to build a community, um, at the local level and all, all across America, a conservation community of people that, you know, care for and want to protect and preserve, uh, our cold water resources. So a lot of times that's actual physical restoration projects, um, which range from, you know, simply planting trees on a stream bank to doing a full scale dam removal in some cases. Um, but there's a really large community portion of it. So, you know, youth education, um, all sorts of community events to try to just bring more people into the, into the fold and teach them a little bit more about what we do and why our cold water fisheries and resources are really important and, uh, you know, deserve a little help from some, from people. It's awesome. I love that about TU. Cold water fisheries are where it's at. I, uh, I've definitely learned a lot more about them since I moved out to Colorado. I grew up in Wisconsin and fishing lakes and stuff like that, but coming out to see the rivers and how important it is to have cold water year round and, plentiful amounts of cold water is really cool. So that sort of, you know, gets us into the next, one of the main reasons I want to chat with you, but uh, we had a little bit of an issue um, last week on the Madison River and you being up there in Montana, I'd love to hear a firsthand account of what happened. What were people doing? What was the, what was ground zero looking like? Well, uh, just a you know, a little bit of background, obviously we have had a pretty long and hard year, um, for trout in Montana. We've had extremely low, uh, low snowpack, which means low water in the rivers. Um, then we had a really unseasonably, um, hot summer. All of this is just not good stuff for trout. In addition, you know, our brown trout numbers in southwest Montana, which, you know, would, the Madison would be considered part of southwest Montana. The brown trout numbers in that part of the state have been declining for uh, the better part of a decade. Um, so a lot of things already kind of stacked against our fish. And then on, I think it was about 2 a.m. on November 29th or 30th um the gate one of the gates at hebgen dam which is the essentially the source of water for the upper madison um malfunctioned and in a time in a window of about 15 minutes the flows out of the dam dropped from 650 cubic feet per second all the way down to just over 200. So that's a 70% loss in flow uh, in about 15 minutes. And what happened with that, you know, with the flows dropping so rapidly, many fish that were pushed into side channels, um, fish that were spawning, obviously it's the brown trout spawn right now, uh, were left stranded um, in, you know, drying up, side channels or little isolated, you know, basically puddles of water. Uh, furthermore, like I said, brown trout are spawning. They're mostly done working the reds, but, you know, those eggs still need to be underwater and uh, not frozen to remain viable. And so a lot of those reds that the fish have been working 
we're unfortunately exposed to the air and the Madison is a pretty high elevation river by Montana standards. I think Hebgen Dam sits at about 6,300 feet. Um, don't quote me on that, but point being, it's pretty high elevation. It gets cold at night. And, you know, while hot temperatures are obviously not great for trout, you know, freezing cold temperatures are likewise very bad. So um, the call went out to the community to show up to the Madison and with some buckets and uh, try to move those stranded fish back into the main channel. Um, and the outpouring from the, the, the community showed up in a huge way for those fish. I mean, there were hundreds of people all up and down the upper Madison, uh, carrying buckets, uh, Montana fisheries, wildlife and parks was there with electroshocking equipment just to try to move some of those stranded fish back into the main river channel. Uh, because at that time it was really unclear, uh, when or if, uh, that dam would be, you know, the flows would be restored. And I don't want to use the term fixed because that's, uh, that's a whole different conversation, but, um, that is pretty much the, the basics of, what happened down there sounds like a mess um so do they have any information about why the dam failed or what occurred to to cause the dam to fail um i you know it's talking to the people that are a little bit more in the know than me um i can't speak to the engineering of what happened but basically a gate closed a gate that was supposed to be open shut uh which is why that you know, the flows just completely dropped because that gate basically malfunctioned and shut off the water. So the immediate goal uh, was to actually get that gate open once again, um, which has happened. So the flows have been brought back up to that, you know, mid 600s. But, uh, you know, it's it's an issue with infrastructure. It's an issue with that dam being very old. And a lot of our dams in America are very old and it didn't function properly. And that's, uh, that's why we have this, we had this mess on our hands. Yeah, absolutely. That's a shame. And the fish in Madison, is that a wild trout population there? It's, it's, it certainly is Cliff. Yeah. Uh, the Madison is actually, so in Montana, um, we do not stock our rivers. Um, there is some, some stocking in lakes, uh, but since the mid 20th century, um, a biologist by the name of Dick Vincent uh, did research actually on the Madison. And this is kind of, uh, kind of fitting that this is where it all starts. Um, did some research of the viability of trout populations when you stock versus when you just let wild fish do their thing. And as anybody that's kind of tied into fisheries biology knows wild fish, when you just let them do their thing, they're, they're really good at it. They've had a lot of practice. Um, and so Madison is a, like all of our other rivers, it's a completely wild trout fishery. Um, there's not as many native uh, cutthroat in the, main stem of the Madison. Uh, it's mostly brown rainbow trout. Um, but the, the nature of a wild fishery is, is 
that it's able to it's able to recover to pretty drastic changes. I mean, in the mid nineties, it was the site of one of the more disastrous uh, fisheries issues of you know the last. 30, 40 years, uh, whirling disease decimated the Madison River's rainbow trout populations um, starting in the mid-90s. And uh, people were really concerned about what that would mean for the future of that fishery. But, you know, wild fisheries are resilient. You give these spe- you give these fish half a chance and focus on habitat and making sure that they have what they need to do their thing. And um, we've seen the Madison really, really come back in a, in a huge way. But even with a viable fishery, you know, there's, there's a lot of other factors that are, um, you know, potentially harming these trout, these low flows and, uh, the Madison is an extremely popular river. So there's a lot of fishing pressure as well, but, you know, wild trout, wild trout populations, man, they're, they're pretty spectacular in in their ability to, to just kind of weather the storm and, um, and come back. And we've seen that time and time and again, hopefully we'll, we'll see that now, uh, with this, with this issue with Hebgen Dam, but, uh, you know, it's still, still pretty unclear what that, what the end result is going to mean for the Madison, but, um, you know, time will tell. Absolutely. And I know you wrote an article about this for tu.org. So we will make sure to put that mm-hmm. article in the description of this podcast so that people can read about it. Uh, but just out of curiosity, how did that call to action go out to people? Was it social media? Was it, you know, friends saying, hey, dude, let's skip work today and go help these fish? How did that happen? <laughs> well, it was a, the situation was a, pretty confused. Um, at first, you know, people were sending out the call um, via social media. The first, uh, first I heard of it was through um, the Fishing Outfitters Association of Montana, which is called FOAM. Um, and they're, they've been an incredible conservation partner for, for us for, well, for as long as I know. Um, and, you know, originally they said, you know, we need all hands on deck to start moving around, uh, these fish and try to get them back into the main stem. Um, when the dam initially failed, I know that a lot of folks that were local down on the Madison immediately dropped what they were doing and grabbed some buckets and tried to move some fish. But, then there was a concern about people uh, <laughs> trampling on reds, and so then people were being asked to not come, and then eventually, um, after some conversations with the owner of the dam, it wasn't sh- it wasn't clear when that dam was going to turn back on, so then the call went out once again um, for everyone to show up, and uh, the next day, that's when, uh, that's when I went down there and when... Um, all these people showed up. So it was largely, it was largely propagated on social media. Um, I know that there were some articles written, but, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of a groundswell, you know, it was a little bit of word of mouth. I, um, I woke up uh, on the morning of the 30th and got a text from text from my buddy, Bill Pfeiffer and said, Hey, let's go down to the Madison and see what, see how we can help out. And, uh, I, I would have to imagine that a lot of people, you know, got that call on a, pretty similar fashion. I mean, I know people came from, you know, it was not just the, the Bozeman, Ennis, uh, Madison river community. I mean, people, I talked to a father and son who came all the way down from Kalispell, Montana, left there at three in the morning. Um, some other folks I know came as far, from as far away as Idaho falls, which is not exactly a short poke, particularly not in December. Um, so there was, you know, I don't know how, how everyone heard about it, but you know, 
it was a, it was a pretty, pretty wide, pretty wide message. Um, and, uh, people answered it, um, and in great numbers, which was just really, really cool to see. Yeah. That's but incredible. The, the whole thing was, the whole thing was pretty disjointed. You know, we were, everyone was scrambling to try to figure out what was going on and, uh, how they could help. Um, you know, emergency situations like this usually aren't the most, uh, well, uh, choreographed. Certainly, certainly they tend to be hectic. Um, I've never experienced anything like that situation, um, you know, a massive decrease in flows or anything like that. But in your article, you were writing about some cliches and some sayings like that, that you're not a big fan of. But one of them that kept going through your head is when things are, when things are bad, some people just really step up to the plate and they're at their best. So I think that's, uh, that really shows that the TU community and the, the angling community out here out West is it's really good good tight-knit group of folks and they're really dedicated to the resource so thank you for doing that yeah, for everyone that wasn't able to make it we really appreciate all y'all's hard work to protect that fishery yeah and you know it's not just you know anglers that you know have um have love for these places you know there were plenty of people that were you know guides and outfitters and anglers and then there were you know a bunch of bunch of college students you know i talked to a guy who's an electrician who's just like i think this is a really awesome place i come and hunt here um so it, it's it's not just the angling community that stepped up you know the, these rivers especially out here you know this is a part of this is a part of who we are and you know um you know, we love, we, I, I can only speak for myself, but I, I certainly love living here. And I don't think that it, I don't think it requires a huge leap in logic to understand that the rivers uh, in the state are, you know, a huge part of that. So there is, you know, people from all walks of life that showed up to try to try to help protect this, uh, this resource that, you know, gives so much to us. Definitely. Yeah. The rivers are the lifeblood of the West. That's one thing you can get from this. It's, it's that. Indeed. Yeah. Have you heard anything about, you know, do they have any estimates on how many fish were killed, how many reds were in risk or what they think long-term damage of this will be? Yeah. Like I said, everything is very, very, very much uh, unclear. It's really not, it's not, we're not going to know what the impacts of this, this event are for, you know, for a couple of years, um, there's obviously going to be an impact on the year class of brown trout. Um, I would say that the of young of the year rainbow trout that I saw dead was significant, but you know, the trout are, you know, a case selecting species. So there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of, of baby fish, you know, looking at it through an optimistic lens, if enough of them survived, you know, this might simply be a situation where fewer, um, fewer organisms means less competition, hopefully a higher percentage of the ones that are still, still kicking will reach adulthood, but it's pretty unclear. Um, and we won't know for many years what, uh, what the impacts of this are, but as we touched on, we talked about wild trout populations, man, the, they are, extremely resilient and you know if we if we give them a chance and we give them some time to heal uh and recover i i I think that um i think that you don't need to be a ridiculously staunch optimist to to think that everything might be okay in the long run as long as you know we give them half a chance here absolutely 
Well, I really appreciate all the insight on that. Like I said, uh, Nick wrote an article for TU.org. We'll make sure to include that in the show notes so that everybody can get into that. Uh, but I'd love to segue a little bit into uh, your position with TU. Um, let's just start with how you got started with Trot Unlimited. What was the initial work you did for them and, and how you got into the organization? Well, um, after college, I, um, I took off my graduation robe and I got in my truck and I drove to, uh, drove to Montana to go work for a, a fly shop over on the Missouri river. And, uh, after a little bit of time, um, I kind of decided that, you know, my, my dream of being a full-time, uh, fishing guide out here wasn't really what I thought I wanted to do. So, um, my, my education background is not exactly um, really helpful for uh, fisheries conservation. Um, if you want to talk about Cold War weapons policy, I can I can help you out. But um, yeah, go figure. What's your so degree I in? Try and, well, I have a degree in history and political science. Okay. Um, but uh, I my thesis was on uh, the failure of brinksmanship as an instrument of foreign policy uh, during the Cold War. So okay. really, really, really helpful stuff when it comes to <laughs> you know fisheries biology. <laughs> so I, you know, I moved uh, I moved to Washington D.C. and I took a job at Trout Unlimited um, as a membership services assistant, which is um, you know more or less the uh, the, the mailroom level uh, <laughs> gig at TU. Uh, sending people stickers and calendars and, and such, and just kind of thought that would be a, a foot in the door. And it turned out that it was, and I took, um, took this volunteer operations coordinator position probably a year and change after I started working for TU and I've never really looked back. Um, that's great. That's, that's a cool story. And short of it. Where did you, yeah, where'd you, where'd you get your degree from? Uh, I got my degree from a little school in Northeast Ohio called the College of Worcester. Okay. Um, yeah, it's about 2,000 people in Ohio's Amish country. It's, uh, you know, it's some people have heard of it, some people haven't, and I don't bat an eyelash at it. Mostly I get Worcester, oh, Worcester Mass? No, not Worcester, Ohio. <laughs> but uh, I, I went out there to play sports and then uh, found myself spending a little bit more time uh, heading up to the Lake Erie trips to fish for uh, the Lake Run Rainbows, Great Lake Steelhead, whatever you want to call them. Uh-oh. Um, spent Uh-oh. a little more time doing that than maybe my college coaches uh, were happy with. And so didn't end up playing sports all four years, <laughs> but uh, did uh, quite a bit more fishing. Good. Yeah, we'll do our best to avoid the Great Lakes steelhead debate on this podcast. I don't need to create a riff in the Five Rivers community. We don't, we don't need to open up nope. that, that box. No, nope. <laughs> not at all. Um, I, I study uh, political science and econ, so you know, one day we'll have to do another podcast about China-U.S. relations or something like that, but maybe not today. <laughs> um, yeah, it might not be the forum for it. No, no. So within your, your position at TU as volunteers coordinator, we talked a little bit about you know what you do, but what's your day to day look like? Are you you having a lot of con- conversations with local chapters and things like that, and really talking to people yeah. on the ground? Yeah. So my my scope is national. You know, our chapters from Alaska to Maine to San Diego, California to Georgia. Um, we have a chapter in Hawaii. Um, not a whole lot of people know this, but there actually are some wild rainbow trout that live up in the mountains in Hawaii, which is no pretty, way. which is a pretty neat, unique little, uh, resource they have out there. But, um, 
my day to day is, you know, helping our grassroots leaders. You know, like I said, these are all volunteers. These are all people that do um, this work, running these uh, grassroots organizations uh, completely out of the kindness of their own heart because they because they believe in the mission and they want to make a difference. And, you know, the reality of a volunteer led organization is sometimes there's a sometimes there's some things that uh, they need a little bit of help with. So um, whether it is providing guidance on, you know, where Trout Unlimited stands on certain policy issues, um, issues of liability, you know, someone doing a stream restoration project needs, uh, you know, quite a bit of insurance coverage. Um, And then, you know, sometimes it's as simple as helping someone figure out how to send an email to a bunch of people, but you know, whatever our volunteers need, um, I'm usually the first point of contact. So, uh, my responsibilities are, they're pretty, they're pretty, uh, pretty diverse. Uh, but basically I would sum it up by saying whatever our volunteers need help with, uh, I'm here for them. That's and great. That's, uh, that's my day to day. Yeah. That's cool. It sounds like, at least when I think about what career I want to have, I want to do something that's dynamic and, and constantly changing. And like you said, some days you're helping emails, some days you're probably doing budget proposals. I mean, for insurance and stuff. So you're all over the place, which is great. Um, I'd love to, to know what your favorite part of your job is. You know, what, what makes you really excited? What makes you motivated? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, I would say it's probably, you know, a couple, a couple of things. I think it's hard to say there's, you know, one favorite part of my job. Um, I know a lot of people who have jobs that they're jobs to them. Um, you know, it's not something that they're necessarily extremely passionate about. Um, but you know, it's, it's their livelihood. Um, for me, I get to go to work every day and work for a company that not only, uh, works to protect something that I have a really deep personal connection with, but also a company that I think does that, um, performs that mission, um, better than anybody else, uh, in our space. And, um, I think that's just a, it's not something I take for granted. Um, the people that we have working for T are incredibly talented, incredibly passionate, uh, professionals. And it's, uh, it's pretty cool to, get to, you know, brush elbows with, with some of the, you know, some of the sharpest people in fisheries. And, uh, the other part that I just really love, um, and this ties into the Madison is getting to see the, the power of a, of a grassroots network and the power of volunteers and community, uh, community conservation. You know, I, I get paid to do this. This is my job. Um, like I said, our volunteers do this because, they simply care that much. These, these resources are that special to them that they sacrifice their time and efforts, um, just to continue to, you know, try to help, you know, make sure that our next generation has, uh, the access and, you know, get, gets to, gets to enjoy these resources that we have. It's not, um, it's not something that, is a, is a given, especially now with uh, our changing climate. And, you know, it seems like, you know, the Madison's a great example. There's, there's more straws, there's more straws in the river than ever before. You know, we're putting a lot of, putting a lot of strain on our natural resources um, in America and beyond. And uh, it's going to take, it's going to take a lot of people working very hard to make sure that uh, 
we we still have those resources in in future in future years and and certainly um we still have those resources in the shape that you know we found them so i guess that's a pretty long way long-winded way of saying um that that's very very powerful to me and very inspiring it really helps me go to work every day motivated absolutely yeah we i've done a little work with the the boulder fly casters chapter of trout unlimited through the cu fly fishing club and i i feel the same way about the people that are in that organization i mean they just love the resource i mean that's just the only way to put it and they want the resource to be there for everybody else because they know it's had an impact on them and they want to continue that impact to the future so do you have a favorite volunteer project or to you you know I guess project in particular that you've seen over the last couple of years that you're like, Oh, I just love the success that that project has seen. It's motivating. Anything along those lines that a specific project you like? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think that honestly, the one that sticks out in my brain is this Madison effort. Um, and I want to be clear that that's not a, this is not a TU project. And, and to me, that's kind of one of the things that is important about this. You know, we are just one, one organization that cares for these resources. Um, and there's just so many, you know, if for lack of a better word, shareholders out there that, that want to, that want to want to see these resources, you know, improved and protected. And, uh, one of my, one of my favorite, uh, conservationist um, is the author Edward Abbey, who you're probably familiar with. And one thing that he, you know, one of his more, more famous quote is sentiment without action is the ruin of the soul. And um, anytime that I see a community really just step up and go to work to protect something they love um, and not just, you know, speak on it or, you know, sign a petition. I mean, that's, that's extremely valuable as well, but anytime people drop what they're doing and, uh, you know, show up and get their, get their hands dirty and, you know, just show, uh, you know, actions speak louder than words. And, um, I certainly have seen many times in this, this Madison, uh, this Madison issue is certainly not the first one, be the last, but it's certainly the one that's sticking out in my mind. of just an example of, um, how powerful it is when people actually, you know, put their money where their mouth is and show up and get to work. Is that Lander over there? I think he found a ball that again. Lander and, that is Lander and Eddie, uh, his, <laughs> his son, um, actual son, and they are currently, uh, you know, it's the daily clash of the Titans. <laughs> I love it. That makes me want a dog pretty bad. I wish the dog was getting away on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> great yeah, sorry for the background noise oh no worries at all it's dogs are welcome on this podcast there's a dog welcome zone <laughs> dog friendly podcast <laughs> exactly exactly uh so it's my understanding you've also done some guiding out there in montana what's the what's the scoop with that yeah um i uh <laughs> you know it's sometimes uh sometimes a good thing to have a little bit of a side hustle um it certainly helps pay the bills um I would say that my, <laughs> I would say that my, uh, my guiding is very much a, uh, you know, an ancillary part of my, my life, but, uh, I, I really, I really enjoy it. Um, I think it's pretty, I think it's pretty powerful to get to take people out and show them, uh, you know, these places that I think are so special and hopefully, uh, leave them with a, 
with a similar mindset at the end of the day. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've been doing that for two years on the side in addition to my work with TU and, uh, you know, I'm really, I'm really enjoying it. That's great. (laughs) Sorry. These dogs, these dogs are really making, making their presence known here. It's all right. It's all right. They're just, they just love how much you love to fish. You take them fishing with you? Absolutely. Lander, um, Lander's favorite spot in the world is sitting right on my cooler, on my boat. Um, so he gets to go with me pretty much, pretty much every day. So when he starts whining and complaining about, you know, I'm not throwing a stick enough for him. I, I just have to remind him how lucky he is, man. This dog, was, <laughs> you live a pretty good life, buddy. <laughs> uh, how is he in the boat? Is he pretty relaxed? I know some dogs go crazy in a boat. No, man, he's good. He's, uh, nice. he's had lots of practice and, um, <laughs> every time we hit the bank he's like okay this is playtime for me yep. now and uh but failing that you know he's he's down to just kind of hang out and um it's pretty funny he uh he must read it off of me but you know if we hook a little a little dink or a you know a white fish i mean he doesn't if he, he'll be taking a nap and he'll maybe pop an eye open but <laughs> he doesn't really care now we get into something serious um and a fish is pulling, pulling line off the reel. And, um, he, he's paying attention. He wakes yep. up and he, he knows that's a good one. You got to get him on the oars one day, help him row yeah, you around, you know, chase that fish down. Yeah. The, uh, the major obstacle to his rowing has been the, the lack of opposable thumbs, uh, major, yeah. major, uh, flying the ointment, but you know, we're <laughs> working on it. Um, you know, one step at a time. Absolutely. He'll get there. Um, so within your your guiding and your fishing out there in Montana, what's your what's your favorite river to fish? Oh, that's not a fair question, Cliff. <laughs> <Whoops>. <laughs> you know, they all. Um, so I'm in Missoula. I'm on the west side of the state, um, and uh, all of our rivers are freestone rivers for the most part. Um, there are some little reservoirs that impact them, but these are mostly completely freestone natural rivers. So they. Uh, they're extremely variable and, um, they all have their time to shine. Um, so picking one of them is certainly not something that I, that I can do in good conscience, but you know, we have the Blackfoot, the Clark fork, we have the Bitterroot and rock Creek are probably the, the big four. And then, um, when it's, when it's runoff or later in the season, we'll, we'll make some forays over the Missouri, um, which is, uh, you know, a large tailwater in central Montana, about two hours away. But they, uh, they all have their moments. They all, they all have their time to shine for me. Um, so picking one, I mean, it's like picking one of your, it's like picking your favorite kid. I mean, oh, hypothetically, yeah. if I had children, um, <laughs> that I imagine it would probably be that difficult, but, yep. um, certainly the rivers around here, um, Man, they're all <laughs> they're all special, but I do definitely have uh, you know certain stretches of them that are kind of my happy places. Yeah, um, definitely. Going back to what you what you said earlier, can you explain a freestone just for anyone that's not familiar with the yeah, term? What does yeah. that mean? So basically, when we talk about trout rivers, we have three kind of major classifications. We have freestone rivers, tailwaters, and spring creeks. Um, spring creeks, pretty simple. It's a you know, it's a creek that basically just bubbles out of the ground. Um, they're most often found in places with lots of limestone, um, but they are, you know, 
they're usually quite small. Um, then we have your tailwaters. Tailwaters are rivers that come out of a dam. Um, and I know down in Colorado, you guys have um, a lot of tailwaters, a lot of tailwater fishing. And tailwaters generally um, produce a lot of food. It's the, the water coming out of dams is... Uh, it's high pH, high levels of dissolved oxygen. So there's a lot of bug life. There's a lot of plant life. They're very nutrient rich. So um, oftentimes there's, um, you know, a ton of, ton of fish guys. This is not going to work. Dogs. <laughs> yep. if you give me one second. Absolutely. Put take, these guys take a outside. second. Yep. We'll take five here. Put do an ad, do an ad read. Ad read. I got to add, Reed. Libby, welcome, uh, welcome to the show. Libby's been silently observing. She had a train coming by when we were doing intros, so she wasn't able to say anything. So welcome, Libby. Thank you. Yeah, definitely would not recommend living on or near train tracks um, it's, or working from home. It's, it's just like a combination. Uh, yep. Those things don't mix well together. Now, Libby, but, you have uh, a dog, right? I do, yeah. What's she doing? She's cruising on the couch right now. Not making a ruckus? No. She, oh okay. Gosh. The worst thing, and I'll never forgive her for this. There was a call that I was doing. It was with Five Rivers members. It was like, no, it wasn't actually. It was with like an advisory committee or something. And I was at my desk standing and she, I guess I had my knees locked and she came up behind me and like put her, like one of her toys into the back of my knees. And like, I forget what that's called when someone does that to you. But like, I mean, I lost it. Like I full on. <laughs> fell into my desk oh, man. while I was on this call. Um, so yeah, still not really over that. Table yeah. yep, yep, that's yep. it. Yep. Like high school that, again. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, she's chilling right now. Good. So I, I apologize for that interruption. No um, <laughs> uh, we got, where is I, tailwaters. Uh, tailwaters so you yep. typically have, you know, a lot of bug life, a lot of, um, a lot of bug life starts, you know, that starts that food chain. So you have a lot of trout and usually a lot of big ones um, because they fish so well, because there's so many fish, there's usually quite a lot of fishing pressure. Um, they can be pretty technical. Uh, they can be tough places to catch fish. And then we have our freestones. Um, freestones are basically rivers that just fall off the side of the mountain. Um, so their water source is entirely uh, snow melt. Or, you know, there is definitely some spring influence in many of them. But they are completely beholden to how much snow is up in those mountains. And because of, you know, because of that, there's nothing to kind of regulate the flows. Uh, they can be very mercurial, um, very, um, you know, one day is completely different than the other. They're uh, they're a living, change, constantly changing thing. So those are kind of three classifications of trout rivers, I guess. Awesome. That's really helpful for anyone that was curious about that. Yeah, we're uh, I'm very attuned to fish and tailwaters out here in Colorado. I'm quite honest, I'm tired of it. It's it's cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was really stoked on it first couple of years. You know, swinging a mysis or a size twenty something midge through a the toilet bowl or the hog trough, but. You know, it gets a little old. But that's uh, I'd love to fish a few more freestones. So I'd, I'll have to make it up to Montana. Well, yeah, it's, uh, you know, there's two sides of that coin, you know, and it's, uh, when it's runoff, you know, we're not fishing very much right. here. Right. Um, and so that's when, you know, for guiding, we'll, we'll take folks over to the Missouri. Um, and we also have the West Fork of the Bitterroot is a tailwater, but yeah, man, it's pretty cool to be on a river that's just completely, um, you know, completely doing its own thing. 
Uh, it's a wild and dynamic, and it's a, it, they're very alive. Nick, did you start doing wade trips and, like, guiding wade trips and then get a boat and start doing float trips, or did you, like, get a boat and then start guiding? Like, what did that process look like? Well, I – um, so I – I did get a boat. I um, I don't do many walk wade trips, but when I was uh, when I was living in Craig, uh, Montana, on the on the Missouri, uh, I bought a boat and uh, just kind of went to work, uh, learning how <laughs> learning how to fish and row. And um, it's certainly something that you know it just takes time on task, like pretty much anything. Um, it's uh, it's definitely been a pretty long process to, to get to where I am in terms of, you know, rowing boats, but, uh, it's, it's simply time on task. Do you have any, uh, advice for anyone that's looking to learn how to row, but maybe doesn't have a good buddy with a boat? Well, that's that. And the answer to that question is no. Um, <laughs> this, <laughs> it's one of those things that, uh, you just got to do it. Um, so, you know, find, drive down the street, find your neighbor that's got an old drift boat parked in his yard and, uh, start chatting with that guy maybe bring him some pastries or something. And, uh, maybe once in a while, let him borrow, let him borrow the boat or like see if he'll let you borrow his boat. But, you know, it's just one of these things that it's all muscle memory and it's all time on task. I, I would say for anybody that's, you know, trying to learn how to row, you just got to go do it. I, so when I was living in Craig, oftentimes, and this is something that I think is very important. If you, if you want to, if you want to get good at something and particularly if you want to be a guide, there's going to be parts of that process that are going to be work. Um, I would grab one of the rental boats before I had my own and just dump it in at the Wolf Creek bridge and row down to town. I'd row, row to one bank, row to the other bank, you know, work on my crab walk at, you know, kind of visualize if I had an angler in the back and front, what I would be doing and just, just time on task. And, uh, one thing I will say to anybody that's, you know, starting to row, um, one of the most helpful things that I have ever taught is keep your oars in the water, no matter what you're doing, keep your oar blades in the water. Cause that'll help you. That'll help you feel what that boat's doing and help you feel what the river's doing. Um, and at the end of the day, it, it is all feel and muscle memory. So you just got, just got to do it. Yeah, definitely. It's I'm, like, I'm sorry. That's a, it's not a, <laughs> you can't really learn how to, you can't really, really learn how to row in a, uh, in, in a gym on the rowing machine or by visualizing it, you just kind of got to feel that, feel that boat and feel the river. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. When I, um, I worked at a shop in Jackson for a summer. And when I first got out there, I was asking people basically that same question and they would just kind of look at me and just be like, uh, go do it. Like, you know, find someone that will let you like, will trust you enough to try to row their boat and just try it. Um, so yeah, there really is no other way. Yeah. And I mean, there's plenty of young kids that I've, uh, kind of taught some stuff to and, you know, if I'm not using it, I'll let them borrow the boat as long as I get to choose exactly where they're going. Um, <laughs> I need to have a little need to have a little bit of peace of mind and take have them take that thing somewhere where I know that they can't mess up too meaningfully. Yeah, don't need sure. them drilling a rock. 
Um, so Nick, for a lot of college kids, having a boat's tough. It's expensive yeah. and you know, you got to have a place to store it. So anyone that was, you know, planning on coming out to Montana, you don't have to burn any spots here or anything like that, but you know, kids that are coming out from Pennsylvania, Colorado, wherever, looking to do a walk wade trip in Montana, what, where would you send them? Where would you say you guys can go have some fun here waiting and, and so good chance of some fish? Um, I think that the if you ask that question at any shop here in, in western Montana, you'd probably get the same answer, um, and it's because it's probably the right one. Um, there are, I think there's actually over 100 rock creeks in Montana, but the rock creek that flows into the Clark Fork uh, just outside of Clinton, about a half an hour here uh, southeast of Missoula, is the rock creek. Um, I don't think you could... I don't think you could make a more perfect West Slope trout stream in a laboratory. Uh, the entire, pretty much the entirety of that river corridor is, uh, it's all public access, all public land. There's more trout than you can catch in a lifetime. They eat dries. The way to Hexas is, like I said, fantastic. There's a road that runs up and down the, the creek. Um, and then, you know, one of the things that I really really like to kind of emphasize is these big rivers can be very intimidating, but if you go on Google maps and find, you know, find a section of river that has a little bit of a braid complex, you know, it can be pretty, pretty manageable for the weight angler. So don't be, uh, don't be shy to, you know, just open up Google maps, get on the satellite view and find something that looks, uh, Find something that looks interesting to you and go check it out. And certainly with Montana's stream access law, high water mark, um, you know, there's a lot you can do with a with a pair of boots and a little bit of a little bit of willpower if you want to go and go for a walk somewhere. Yeah. Google Maps is incredible. That's one of my favorite things. I mean, even growing up fishing, that was my favorite way to spend the night before just hunting it down with your buddies and trying to figure out where you can get in and where you can fish. Um so I was doing some stalking yeah, on your, if you, you know, if you're in a state with, um, if you're in a state, do it with, uh, you know, less, uh, less lenient stream access law. Um, a thing I use a lot, probably more for hunting than fishing. Um, but, uh, I know no free ads, but, um, Onyx maps, if you just have one state, um, I think it's like $15 a month and it's certainly nice to have a little bit of peace of mind, but it, it allows you to, you know, find little parcels of public land where you can get into streams and, um, go have a good time. Awesome. Awesome. Now I was looking at your Instagram and it looks like you do some, some trout space stuff. Can you talk a little bit about that? I I've, you know, swung flies up in Alaska and stuff like that, but out West, it seems like it's a new concept. Well, it's certainly something that has, has kind of taken off in the past few years. Um, I, when I fished the Great Lakes trips, I was always doing it with a two-handed rod. Um, I really enjoy two-handed fishing. Um, it, you know, one of the major parts of the whole equation of this, you know, the fly fishing game is, you know, the time uh, on the river. And I think that fishing with a two-handed rod is just about as simple and meditative and relaxing a way to fish as there is, you know, it's simply, simply, you know, make a cast, let that, let that line come tight, swing the fly, take two steps and repeat. Um, you get a lot of time to get a lot of time with your own thoughts. A lot of time, just kind of appreciating the river. And, uh, you know, when a fish crushes a fly on a, on a tight line, 
Um, it's, it's a pretty spectacular, it's a pretty spectacular feeling. And, uh, it's certainly something that I do quite a lot of here in the winter, um, and our kind of shoulder seasons when, uh, when the dry fly fishing is not, uh, exactly inspiring, or if I just have, you know, an hour or two and I just want to just go out and be, uh, on the river, it's a very simple way to fish. You can go with, you know, a, uh, a couple of flies and an old can of chew and, um, <laughs> and that's all you really need. And then <laughs> this full eight pound maxima, and, yep. um, you know, you're not, you're not mending, you're not looking for that next piece of water. You're just stepping through your run. So it's something that I definitely, definitely really love doing and, uh, spend a lot of time doing particularly around this time of year. Cool. Yeah. It's, it's one of my favorite ways to fish. I definitely need to do it a little more. It's, it's, the big rivers you have up there, I think, make it a little easier. It's tougher in Colorado. You know, I've, I've swung to Colorado sure. a couple times, and um, you know, but I mean, when you're up in Montana, it seems like a great way to fish and really just take a couple deep breaths. So, what's your your swing setup look like? What kind of rod, reel, line you using? Um, so in the winter here, I am almost entirely fishing um, short gadget heads. Um, I fish a eleven foot six inch four weight. Um, with a, you know, uh, short gadget head on it. And, um, that pretty much gets me through the winter, uh, in the, in the fall and, um, in the summer when we have, you know, the caddis are popping, then you probably want to use a, uh, a Scandi setup and throw a, you know, dry line stuff and swing, swing little caddis, soft tackles right up in the top of the water column when the fish are more willing to, you know, come up and grab some. And so for that, you want to probably have, you know, either a two or three weight rod, but, um, to get me through the winter, throwing, you know, big, well, relatively heavy tips and, um, you know, small streamers, definitely the, the Skagit setup is, is the way to go. And particularly if you're just getting started, uh, Skagit heads, they're short, they're heavy, they can, you know, even if you're just starting, you can get that thing out there and at least be fishing, um, without having to, you know, without having to look like Whitney gold. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's a tough cast to figure out at the beginning, but if you get your setup, right, your right line, right rod, right tip, everything like that, you can really bomb some line out there. So. Absolutely. And it's certainly, uh, if anyone's ever, if you've ever been to a driving range, um, and you start hitting golf balls, you hit one pure and you're like, Ooh, yep. that was awesome. Oh, same yeah. thing applies to <laughs> same thing applies to spade casting. Yeah. You know, when you really, when you get a hold of it and really just feel that, feel that head turn over and yeah. just take your tip and your fly all the way out into the middle of the run. It's a, it's a pretty awesome feeling. You feel, I mean, it, it'll drink the rod out of your hand if you, if you do it right. I mean, you can really launch it. Um, that's pretty cool. So one more question here before we get all wrapped up and it's kind of big picture, but as the volunteer coordinator, do you have any advice for young people looking to get involved with TU, looking to get involved with maybe just volunteering in general? Uh, what do you, what do you recommend yeah. to those college kids that are trying to get out there and help? Well, I would say, you know, obviously getting in touch with your local TU chapter is certainly something that you should be definitely doing. Um, but when it comes to just engaging in volunteer work in, in your community, you know, think about what, it, what are the resources that are important to you and, um, you know, take a look around in your community and see, see who's fighting the good fight and what they're doing, you know, uh, whether it's just cruising the internet, cruising Instagram, finding, uh, finding some local groups and, uh, you know, a conversation with some folks at the fly shop, 
always extremely valuable for not only this, but pretty much anything under the sun. Um, and just find, uh, find some people that are, you know, in your mind doing some, some good work for something that you, for something that you care about and, uh, you know, get in touch with them. And I, I don't think that, I don't think that any, any sort of, uh, volunteer action should be limited to, you know, just fisheries. You know, this is, uh, rivers and trout are just one part of, um, you know, these really complex ecosystems that we, that we live in. Um, so, you know, talk to your, talk to your local Sierra club, you know, people, there are people that are super into butterflies, mm-hmm. um, find out just how, you know, how you can just, you know, take a few hours uh, on a weekend and go and help out. And I can promise you that the people you're going to meet, uh, that are, you know, given their time and effort to, to help their community. I, I can almost guarantee you that those are, those are good folks and those are folks you're going to be happy to know. Um, but if, uh, if TU is something you're interested in, um, we have a resource on the Trout Unlimited website to find your local chapter and uh, get in touch with them and find out how you can help. And we'd certainly, um, anybody that comes to the table and is willing to, Willing to give some time and effort, man. They're they're gonna have they're gonna have a they're gonna have a home here in a in the Trout Unlimited universe, definitely, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, we'll make sure to to link that uh, as well as how to find your local TU chapter in the show notes. But I think what you said there really goes back to your your quote you gave of sentiment without action is the ruin of the soul. I mean, everything Absolutely. everybody's got something that makes them tick, and whatever makes you go the extra mile for the resource, that's what you just gotta find. So. That's really cool. But I've had a great pleasure talking to you. I'm sure Libby's enjoyed it as well. I really appreciate all the advice you gave to all the college clubs and everyone out there that's still learning. So thank you very much, Nick. Really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Anytime. Good talking to you, Cliff.